Good morning, everyone. This morning's passage comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, which can be found on page 907 of your Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for, for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he had stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm really excited to uh, begin this new series. We're going to pause in the Gospel of Mark. We'll return to the Gospel of Mark uh, January 1st, so uh, look forward to continuing in that um, Gospel. But we're actually going to start this Gospel and just look at the first couple chapters uh, as we're uh, engaged in this Advent season. And as a church, we're kind of immersing ourselves in Luke chapters 1 and 2 uh, for lots of different reasons. Uh, obviously, it's Advent. That's the main reason. But uh, lot of, lots of different ways we're doing that, and that's what I'm trying to say. Today we uh, begin this journey. We're going to take four weeks to look at these chapters. We're not going to go over everything in these two chapters, but most of the uh, narrative. And let's talk about Luke a little bit. Who is Luke since we're starting his gospel? Well, Luke was a historian, he was a theologian, and he was a physician. 
And he, in this particular gospel, has given us one of the finest pieces of historical writings in, uh, from the first century. And as you look at these opening verses, you'll notice, first of all, who he's writing to. He's writing to, notice, Theophilus, but we also notice why he's writing. In verse 4, it says that he wants Theophilus to know the certainty of the things that he's been instructed Theophilus must have been a young Christian. Luke's writing a two-part history to him, Luke and then Acts, and he wants him to grow in confidence in the things he's already been taught. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Most of us know this story, uh, this Advent story about baby Jesus. Most of us, I would imagine, love this story. Perhaps over the years we've read it a hundred times or a thousand times, uh, we've flannel boarded about it. We sing about it. We tell our children about it. So why should we visit this story for yet another year? Well, because we too, just like Theophilus, need to know the certainty of things that we've already been instructed. We don't necessarily need to know more of the story details. We need to know our Savior better. We don't need to grow our affection for holiday traditions, even though those traditions are good. We need to grow our affection for Jesus, the Savior, and the God who has planned this salvation before the world was formed. And so it is my prayer uh, this, this season for myself, for our church, for my family as well, that through these sermons, through the concert and the devotional and all the different ways that we're engaged and immersed ourselves in Luke chapters 1 and 2, that this month would be a real significant spiritual turning point for us as a church, that we would encounter Christ anew and afresh in His Word and by His Spirit, that our worship would deepen, that our joy would multiply. I'm praying for God to draw more people to Himself in the next few weeks. I'm praying for conversions, and I want to invite you to pray alongside with me. To begin with, I want us to quickly look at the end of this chapter, kind of unusual, I know. Look at the end of this chapter, chapter 1, verse 78. It's a long chapter. We're only going to look at the first 25 verses today. But at the end of this chapter, we have Zechariah, and the punchline you know, was already read to us. So Elizabeth, his wife, does conceive, and this is kind of uh, after the moment that she has the baby. There's a lot of joy, there's a lot of worship, and there's also prophecy, and notice as a part of Zechariah's prophecy what he says in verse 78. He says, Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. What an incredible metaphor. Here, the birth of Jesus is described with a haunting metaphor. The dawn from on high will visit us. We have to understand the context here. God's people, the Jews, have been living in darkness, perpetual, pervasive darkness. It was a long 400 years. 400 years had passed since Malachi's time without a word of prophecy, without a sign of a prophet. And it was dark because God had been silent. It was not a peaceful time for Israel. They were a defeated people. They were watching a foreign power occupy their land. It was a time of longing for deliverance. The night before the sunrise had been long and dark for Israel. But friends, the faithful bright flashes of hope from God's word assured them, assured them that one day, one day, the night would end. 
And now here with our story, the long darkness was about to give way to the sunrise of Jesus, right? Great plans laid in eternity past, prophesied from the annals of Jewish history. Now they begin to activate. Now they begin to unfold. I want you to imagine this, friends. Angels had been waiting for millennia for this moment. These great, holy, majestic, powerful beings, they would play an important role in this story, and their activity would initially be focused. As we open up Luke chapter 1, it would be initially focused inside a temple, Herod's great temple. Here's the main point in a sentence. You'll see it on your screen. God works in a womb to give us a picture of His work in us. God works in a womb to give us a picture of His work in us. Now, if you've been with Faith Church for uh, a, oh, about a year or so now, we have spent some time in First Samuel. And in First Samuel, we see some of very similar themes that get echoed in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And so if you're, you're reading what's up on your screen, you might think, wait, that sounds really familiar. It's supposed to sound really familiar because it comes right out of what also occurs in First Samuel's chapter 1 and 2. There's something that God does for Zechariah, and in particular Elizabeth, that correlates with what he does for his people, with Israel. And it also correlates with what God does for us today. And I want to point out in this story three movements that are going to kind of help us see this particular theme. Here's the first movement. Barrenness for the righteous, looking at verses 5 through 12. Barrenness for the righteous. Now, we're introduced to these three characters. First of all, Herod the Great, who ruled over Judea and Samaria and Galilee and the surrounding area from 37 to about 4 BC. And you see Zechariah, which means, by the way, the Lord has remembered, very fitting, who is in Abijah's priestly division, which is the eighth of 24 priestly divisions, all in charge of managing temple affairs. And of course, his wife, Elizabeth, from the bloodline of Aaron, who is, of course, Moses' brother. But I want, what I want you to notice is what is highlighted about this couple. What is highlighted about this couple is that they are righteous, but they are also childless. They are righteous, but they are also childless. And they faithfully worshipped and issued their duties. They kept the commandments. They repented when necessary. And yet, Elizabeth is barren. In this society, in the first uh, century, personal childlessness was a great burden, uh, a socially and economically devastating problem. Notice uh, verse 25, the last verse in our section. This is after uh, she conceived. She says, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with me, uh, looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. So she was experiencing disgrace among her own people because of her barrenness. So this couple, though honored with priestly duties and grace with a life of faithfulness, they were also given by the Lord a life of shame and disgrace to some extent. So they probably wondered, if we are righteous, why are we childless? Or because we are childless, maybe we're not righteous. I mean, this is the human tendency, isn't it, right? You know, we have this tendency to conflate God's approval with our circumstances. That tendency is so common amongst all of us, but it's a tendency that's wrong, that's unhelpful. It doesn't always make sense to us when God lays such pains and burdens on our shoulders. 
How do we deal with this? How do we deal with pain and spiritual barrenness and unexpected evil? Because here's the deal. Maybe we're righteous too, right? Maybe we're faithful. We're following God. Sure, we're not perfect. But the general kind of trajectory of our lives is one that honors Jesus by God's grace. And now, God, you've thrown this burden, this trial, this difficulty on my shoulders. You kind of wonder how many unrighteous people around Zacharias and Elizabeth had large families, had no problem getting pregnant. And they must have been wondering, why them and not us? Why him and not me? Imagine how difficult it must have been for them to rejoice in the pregnancy of others. They must have felt through those circumstances, joyful circumstances of others, they must have felt that stigma of shame, especially Elizabeth. And we wonder these kinds of things too, don't we? Why them and not us? Why him and not me? I'm walking with God. I mean, and it appears like God is just kind of walking me right into the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Is he punishing me? Our disappointments will either make us bitter or make us better. Our disappointments have a way of producing in us this this terrible kind of theology, a, a sort of theology that denies the goodness of God because we're experiencing pain and difficulty and strain. And and so God must not be good. He must be withholding good from me. Friends, it's in the moments of internal crisis like that where we must, with the Spirit's help, reach out to Christ and renew our faith in Him. We are not always going to understand. Perhaps we're not meant to. We're not meant to understand the ins and outs of divine providence. We're meant to trust in the benevolence of God despite it. We must confirm within ourselves and in our hearts that God is still good, that God is still sovereign, that God is still powerful and mighty to save, right? Being righteous does not mean a cross-free life or a challenge-free life or a heart ache-free life. You serve God for what you can get from him, then you're actually serving yourself. And you're actually entertaining a soft version of the prosperity gospel. It's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel includes within its category of life, the biblical gospel includes a life of suffering. Sometimes God will call us into heartaches. And if we are God's people, we will live righteously because God is our ultimate hope. And Christ is our ultimate treasure, right? And here's the, here's the deal, friends. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they passed this test. They are examples of a righteous life despite disappointment. So their example kind of provokes us, doesn't it? Will we serve God faithfully through disappointment? No child. No husband. A broken life. No to that dream job. Will Jesus mean more to us than all those things? And you got your list, I got mine. Will Jesus mean more to us than all those things, though we may get none of them in this life? Notice in verse 7, the description of Abraham and Sarah. They were both old now, that should trigger something in us, right? If we're going, okay, wow, that sounds really familiar. A couple that's barren, that's old, huh? Double click on Genesis chapter 17, right? So Abraham and Sarah, like 
you should have remembered this. They should have remembered this. Maybe they did. We don't know. Elizabeth wasn't the only barren woman in the Bible. She joins the ranks of the patriarchal wives. So Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, and then later on we know Hannah was barren for a season. Friends, when God does a big thing, barrenness is usually involved. When he begins to form a nation around uh, that man named Abraham, Sarah, his wife, is barren. When he makes these huge grand promises of a nation that's going to come forth from you, Abraham, the next thing we read is that his wife is barren. When God brings his word back to Israel after decades of silence, this is in the judges period of time, young Hannah is barren. What's going on? When God does a big new thing, barrenness is often involved. Why is that the case? Because God wants to make it crystal clear that salvation is accomplished only through him, only through his power, only by his grace. And so he chooses the the place of weakness, the place of shame, the place of dishonor to exalt himself and his salvation. Look how the story unfolds in verses 8 through 12. When Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the Lord was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Imagine all of God's people are outside. Zechariah is performing. He starts to perform his priestly duty. By the way, this is a big deal. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime thing for Zechariah. This is not something he does every month or week. So this is a huge, huge privilege and honor for Zechariah to be called in on this particular task. And then what happens is this angel shows up right next to the altar. Now, lighting some incense turned out not to be the big story, big headline story for the day. This was the day that God was beginning to break his silence. And what was Zechariah doing when the angel showed up? Well, it appears he was praying. Look at verse 13. The angel says, because your prayer has been answered. Now, what was Zechariah praying about? We don't know for sure. I think we can make a good guess here. It seems from Gabriel's description that he was most likely praying for the redemption of Israel. I'm sure he was praying perhaps for years for a child for new life in his wife's womb, for personal fruitfulness. But here we see, I think, Zechariah very likely praying not only for a child, not only for personal fruitfulness, but for new life, for spiritual fruitfulness for God's people. And so his eyes are lifted beyond his own little world, beyond his own pains and strains. As a priest, as a righteous man, he knows what Israel needs most is what God has promised for centuries. Salvation, a Messiah to come and visit. Let's not forget about this angel, this angel that kind of shows up by the side of this altar. This isn't a cute, chubby little baby with a harp, okay? Sometimes what we think, we think of angels like, oh, cute little chubby. No, this is, angels in the Bible are glorious, powerful, large, majestic beings. When they're described in the Old Testament, they are the only beings situated in God's very presence. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. On Mount Sinai, God came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Listen, they are so majestic and so beautiful that they, they sort of decorate and adorn the throne room of God. 
and they're powerful. Peter says in his second letter, they are greater in power than humans. Uh, These heavenly creatures, they they use their power to battle against Satan's forces, right? So we see that in Daniel. We see that in the book of Revelation. These are powerful creatures. And the other thing they do is they carry out some of God's mission, God's plans, like we see here with Zechariah. They can serve as messengers, in other words. Listen, folks, if suddenly an angel were to show up here in this room, maybe unveiled in the fullness of its glory, and, and all of a sudden it stood here or stood over there by the tree, how do you think you and I would respond? We would be so floored by the sight of this heavenly creature that we would be laying prostrate on our faces. We would be undone. We would be so uncomfortable. We wouldn't have the words to tell the reporter of what we've seen because we're so overwhelmed. We would be undone. This is an angel, and this is the angel that showed up to Zacharias. Notice in verse 12, it says that Zechariah was terrified. He was overcome with fear. This is very similar to the other saints uh, that have, have kind of encountered um, similar circumstances. So think about Moses at the burning bush. Think about the women at the tomb or John on the island of Patmos as he's receiving this great vision and he sees angels. They all showed fear like Zechariah. This is what happens when, when people see visions of things belonging to another world. Fear, right? Fear and trembling and, and, and being undone. And all of those events, Moses and the burning bush and the women of the tomb and John on the island of Patmos, all of these events were key integral moments along the redemptive historical timeline, right? So we've got barrenness and we've got angels showing up. We've got people afraid during really important moments. This sort of confluence of events should make us realize that God is up to something really, really, really big. Perhaps the biggest thing ever. So what is he doing? Well, let's see what he's doing. Look at the next section of Scripture, verses 13 through 17. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. Quick parenthetical thought there. I don't think beer is in the original language. I just find it fascinating. I think the, the uh, translators thought, well, we need to connect a little bit with the 21st century, so let's say wine or beer. It's a little strange, but there we are. Okay. Back to John. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and to the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So the first thing he says is, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. I mean, what a touching moment, right? Zechariah's been praying for a child. He's been praying for Israel. The angel says, listen, God hasn't ignored you all these years, all these years. By, by all appearances, he had prayed for a child in vain. At his advanced age, he probably stopped praying for that child. Maybe now his prayers were entirely for Israel. You know, save us, O Lord. Bring that Messiah that you've promised, right? For 400 years, some 20 generations, how many righteous Zacharias have been praying those kinds of prayers for God to come and and visit them and save them? One of the things we see here, friends, is God doesn't pass over those prayers. He didn't turn a deaf ear to those prayers. 
And there's a lesson for us in this. Our prayers are not necessarily rejected because the answer is long delayed. God knows better than we do. His answer might be never. His answer might be not now. His answer might be, okay, here you go. Whatever the answer is, it's always good for his people. Psalm 84, verse 11, it's such an important verse. Listen to what it says. It says, God doesn't withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly. Do you hear that? God doesn't withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly. So if he's withholding something, maybe it's not good just yet for you. Sometimes God has to withhold a good thing in order to teach us to love a better thing. For Zechariah, that better thing was God himself, but also the good of his people Israel, these precious promises that related to the, his whole people. Zechariah became immersed in the promises of God for Israel. For us, the better thing, of course, is Jesus. He's our ultimate treasure, but also the welfare of the church. Jesus is our treasure, but the church is his bride. When our eyes are lifted away from our troubles, we're able to see and savor Jesus better, yes, but also see and savor God's promises, his plans as it relates to the church. When we're so wrapped up in our own worlds, our own desires, how can we see the bigger and better things that God has in store for us, for his church? Well, like what? There's a long and distinguished list that we can go through as we consider the promises of God as it relates to the church. Jesus is presently interceding for his people, the church. Jesus will come back in power to make all things new for his people, the church. Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit are together crafting a new world which awaits us, his church. And God has promised in the meanwhile to hold us fast, to keep us safe until then. And those promises relate to the church, the people of God. Now, what's extraordinary is that Zechariah's prayer for a child and his prayers for a nation would be answered in one fell swoop, right? Notice the angel quickly tells him that he will indeed have a son. What a tender moment, what kindness from our Lord to bring forth and give forth new life. According to verse 14, this little boy, John, would bring them great joy. That makes sense after all these years of waiting. But the angel tells them that he would be more than just their son. He would be more than just this brand new baby boy in front of them. He was going to be different. He was going to be special. Notice starting in verse 15, the, the descriptions get into kind of superlative levels, right? He will be great in the sight of God. He will never drink wine. Now, that's part of the Nazarite vow. It's to kind of set him apart for a special task for God. He'll be filled with the Spirit while in the womb, parenthetically. If a fetus can be filled with the Spirit, well, maybe that fetus should be named a human. We'll talk more about that later in a couple of weeks. He will turn many of God's people to the Lord. He will be like Elijah. He will make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Whoa! This is more than just like a brand, little, brand new little boy. This is way bigger than that. This is bigger than a barren couple who's been given a child. God is doing something big. 400 years of silence. Listen, God can give us the silent treatment if he wants to, but now here in this story, he breaks that silence. And what does God say through Gabriel when he begins to speak again? He picks up right where he left off. 
with the last words spoken 400 years ago in Malachi chapter 4. It's a prophecy that was given about Elijah coming and, 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 and Elijah kind of preparing the way for the Lord, right? That's at the end of Malachi chapter 4. You fast forward 400 years, here we are. Gabriel says, hey, I'm going to allude to Malachi chapter 4. I mean, it's not. It's beautiful stuff, isn't it? What God has promised in the Old Testament now is coming to fruition and fulfillment. The dawn is upon us. The messianic age of hope, the messianic age of the Spirit has arrived. And I want you to notice another thing. What is the purpose of John's ministry? This, this man who will be filled with the Spirit when he was a fetus and forward. Well, notice in verses 16 and 17, there's a word that's repeated twice. Do you see that word that's repeated twice in 16 and 17? The word is turn. He's going to be just like Elijah because God is going to use him to turn the hearts of his people back to himself. John the Baptist would till the soil of people's hearts in preparation for the seed of Jesus' word and presence to be planted. And that tilling work, that tilling work is the work of turning. And we shouldn't be surprised by that word turn because that's precisely what repentance means. It means to turn. It means to change directions, to break off from one path, to choose another path. Many in Israel, many of the pagan nations, the Roman Empire, they were on one path, a path of the world, a path that would lead them to hell. But there's a Messiah coming. God is going to visit his people. And this Messiah is going to introduce another path, the path of life. And in order to get on this path, it makes sense, right? You got to turn. You got to turn away from the path you're on. You got to get in a new path. That's what the ministry of John the Baptist was. As we said a, a few months ago when we were looking at um, the, the doctrine of repentance, repentance is not only the entrance into the Christian life, it is the Christian life. It's the ongoing practice of the Christian. And so if you want to experience this kind of new messianic age of promise and hope, then it begins with repentance, and it continues on with repentance. I'm leading, a, um, alongside a couple of our pastors, uh, a men's discipleship group, and we meet once a month for about three hours, Sunday evenings. Uh, and, and one of the questions we discuss every time we meet, we kind of split up into small groups and talk through this. One of the questions we discuss is, what are you presently repenting of? What are you presently repenting of? And we, of course, don't want anyone to come into our, you know, kind of discipleship group and, okay, I got to get super negative and think about all the bad stuff in my life and like kind of you know, drown in sorrow and discouragement, right? But, but here's the thing. Here's what we see in the story, kind of exemplified uh, through picture, but we see it elsewhere in Scripture as well. We see that repentance, a turn, is the thing that unlocks the new life that Jesus offers. It's the thing. It's the start. It, it's a start when we become a Christian. It's a start tomorrow if you're involved and engaged in some sin. And if you want to get back on the right path where you're experiencing joy and hope, it begins with repentance. And so this is an important question. What are you presently repenting of? We will either think repentance is occasional, which is an indication that we are minimizing our sin, or we will think that repentance is ongoing and important, which is an indication that we are taking our sin and God's promises seriously. So let me ask you, friends, a couple questions. When was the last time you repented when was the last time you made a turn? When was the last time you changed your mind about something? 
you know, we live in a culture today, in a society today, and people outside the doors of this wall where whether it's political conviction or religious convictions or otherwise, they are entrenched in particular beliefs and truths and ideas and perspectives to the point where they will argue uh, all the time about these convictions and perspectives. And when they're pushed and prodded and challenged, it's their pride that keeps them kind of uh, uh, entrenched in those convictions. I want to contrast that to what we see here, the ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It's a ministry of turning, of changing. It's the exact opposite of what we see in our broader culture. Listen, friends, our broader culture is entrenched in particular convictions. They hold on to them with pride. We are a people that we're always changing because Jesus is constantly working in our life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, helping us look more and more like him, right? And so there, there should be this, this gigantic contrast between the world and what the world is offering, and what the world is doing, and then what the church is doing and what the world offers. And part of that is in the way we repent and change. All right, let's look at the final movement right now, um, verses 18 through 25, fruitfulness for the faithful. Let's look at verses, um, well, look with me at verse 18. How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. You know, his response is comical to me. You know, a celestial messenger met him in the great temple on his big day and told him that he's going to have a son who will fulfill the ancient prophecy of Elijah's coming to prepare the way of the divine Messiah. And what is his first thought? My wife is too old. You know, it's like, what? I mean, there's an angel standing right there. This hasn't, this is not like a regular occurrence, right? And he's like, but wait a second. My wife's not, you know, she's really old. Friends, when our eyes are on our problems, in Zachariah's case, on their old age, we will have trouble receiving God's word and trusting God's power. This angel has just held out the grand promises of God to him, right? And to his people, telling him of their near fulfillment. His very presence is indication of God's presence and power and glory. But he doesn't get it. Sometimes our problems get too big in our minds and hearts, don't they? And then we miss the constant, obvious, weighty, glorious promises and power of God that has been manifesting all around us. You know, if you hold up a, a quarter to your eye, you can block out the noonday sun, right? As powerful as it is, you can kind of block it out. And we sometimes do that with our problems. We, we hold our problems and limitations to our eye in the same way, bringing them so close that we cannot apprehend the great glowing sun of God's promises and his power. We begin to experience a sort of spiritual amnesia. You know, why didn't Zechariah remember Abraham in Genesis chapter 17? You know, almost the same situation, right? Here's the circle of life. You know, it's we're back. God gave Abraham and Sarah a son when they were about 100 years old. Zachariah should have remembered, remembered God's word, but instead he's focused on his limitations. We're more like Zachariah than we'd like to admit. You know, we can be righteous in the holiest of places. We come to church and, you know, we, we put ourselves together and put our best foot forward and so forth. We can do lots of holy acts, whether it's service or prayer or Bible reading or trying to love each other in the church, and these are good things. But then when we're pressed and prodded by the stuff of life, there's a moment perhaps, maybe initially or maybe later on, where we fail to trust. And unbelief kind of sneaks in 
and maybe it's last minute or maybe it's later in the situation, but it sneaks in and it kind of perverts your ability to keep going. You can be a long-serving missionary. You could be a a long-serving evangelist in your neighborhood and not believe that someone can be saved. You could be a faithful wife committed to her husband and not believe that he's a gift from God and that he could change. We can pray and seek out our heart's deepest desires. And we're praying, we're we're begging God, and we're, we're seeking his face. And laced in the marrow of our prayer is a subtle and sneaky unbelief, like Zechariah. And so what does Gabriel do? He rebukes him in verses 19 through 25. I find these verses really comical too, the, the sort of straightforwardness in which Gabriel addresses Zechariah. Gabriel's like, man, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I work for? Don't you know where I came from? Like the throne room of God? You want more proof? <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, how about this? Since you like to question God's word, I will close your mouth until the whole promise is fulfilled. Let's try that on for size, right? And that's exactly what happens. And so he is mute for a season. But the beautiful thing about Zechariah is that his story arc in the rest of the chapter brings some resolution and relief and encouragement to us. I mean, it's great. We see, first of all, Elizabeth conceiving and then having a son. So flip over to chapter 1, verse 57. I just want to show you a little bit of the end of the story. Chapter 1, verse 57, it says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. There it is. It's a wonderful thing. And, and when Elizabeth insisted that her son be named John, Zachariah, by writing on a tablet, again, he can't speak, but he wrote on a tablet and confirmed, yes, he should be named John. It's what he had heard from Gabriel, right? And so he's showing faith. And then look at verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. What a turn of events. Even the righteous can struggle to believe. Isn't that encouraging, friends? Even the righteous can struggle to believe. God doesn't cast us aside just because we didn't show spiritual strength and spiritual faith. In that moment of crisis that came upon us, he works with those who have incomplete faith, who have immature faith. In fact, he works just like he did here with Zechariah. He works to build that faith up. And so if you're in a place of trial and difficulty right now where your faith in Jesus is being challenged, maybe it's a particular attribute of God or an attribute of Jesus that's being challenged, let me encourage you, do not give up. Find the thing that God wants to teach you right now. Find the the attribute of God or the attribute of Jesus that's being tested in your heart and give yourself to studying it in the Bible. Give yourself to praying over it from the Scriptures and, and allow your heart to grow that trust in Jesus. Our story closes with Elizabeth, and, and this is great, looking at verses 24 and 25, going back to our section of the passage it's in great contrast to her husband's lack of faith. We see her vibrant faith. Verse 24 says, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, here's the expression of faith, The Lord has done this for me. He has looked with me in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Now, we don't want to moralize this. We don't want to enshrine a principle here. There's no promise for every barren woman who prays, right? Elizabeth's story is part of a bigger story. 
And what is that bigger story? Well, what God has done for Elizabeth is a picture of what he will do for Israel and us. What he gave to Elizabeth, this new life, this favor, this honor in place of shame, he will give to Israel. Listen, the first episode in the Gospel of Luke is an announcement, but it's not just an announcement of John the Baptist in in this miraculous way, this miraculous conception. It's the announcement of life. That's what's happening in these first 25 verses. God is introducing, and and there's echoes, right? There's there's echoes back into Genesis. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's echoes back to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 with with Hannah, Hannah, excuse me. But but, but this this is new life in a womb that's meant to picture for us what God is going to do in Israel. He put life in Elizabeth. He's going to put life in dead Israel. Friends, he can put life in you. That is the message for us this morning. He can put life in you. So how do we welcome this new life that God has? Let me end with three applications. And it's really um, just kind of summarizing what we've already talked about. Three quick applications to close. First of all, trust God's promises of new life. Trust God's promises of new life. Like we've said already, uh, like Zechariah, there will be obstacles that's going to tempt you to lift your eyes from God's word, from his plans, his promises. For Zechariah, it was old age and barrenness. What might it be for you today? What is the thing that is causing you to doubt God, to, to do something that you don't want to do because you're doubting God, to, to sin in a particular way because you're doubting God, because maybe the, your set of circumstances right now are pressing in on you and they're difficult. Let me encourage you. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, God's word, his promises are rock solid. They are rock solid. There are promises that God has made to his people, to you, to faith church, regardless of present circumstances, regardless of future circumstances and uncertainties, they are true. And so you can trust God. You can trust God when he says to you, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can trust God when he says to you, nothing, nothing can separate you from my love. You can trust God when he says to you, I am for you. I will never be against you. I'm always on your side. I always do good to you. You can trust God when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can trust God when he says through the apostle Paul, In his letter to the Corinthians, these light and momentary troubles are nothing, nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that I have for you. These promises and more are yours in Christ Jesus. Trust them, cling to them. They're going to unlock the new life that Jesus has purchased for you. Number two, turn towards this new life. So trust God's promises of new life. Turn towards this new life. Listen, friends, I'm going to say what I kind of said before. I'm just going to say it again in different words, perhaps. If you want the spiritual life that God has for his people, then you've got to be willing to turn. Are you willing to repent? If you feel distant from God, if you feel like you're floundering or treading water, let me ask you that question again. When is the last time you've made a turn? When is the last time you've repented? When have you turned and changed directions away from yourself, away from your sin and towards God? And, and, and if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're so welcome here. And the arms of Jesus are wide open to you. And the way to run towards him, the way that you can do that is through the practice of repentance. 
So let me encourage you to do that. There's Christians here too. Repentance and turning is our life, as I said before. The Christian life is made up of thousands of small and medium and big turns, changes, repentances. If you're resistant to that, then you're on the wrong track. If you're open to that, it's going to unlock more of Christ's life in you. Number three, so trust God's promises of new life, turn towards new life. And number three, pray for new life. This might be the most important thing I say. We encourage you to follow Zachariah's example of prayer. Here's the bottom line truth that lies underneath this whole story. It really underlines much of the biblical narrative. Only God can bring something out of nothing. Only God can bring something out of nothing. We see this back in Genesis chapter 1, where he creates physical life, ex nihilo, out of nothing. We see it echoed all the way through scriptures. It lands in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, where that's exactly what God does for Hannah as a picture for what he's about to do in Israel. And we see it here in Luke chapter 1, where he brings life out of nothing, that he puts life in Elizabeth's dead womb to give us a picture Give us a picture that in the midst of weakness, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of shame, only God can bring life. Only Him. And so what this means practically for you and me is we ought to be a praying people. Plead with God for spiritual life in every place there is spiritual death. Is there spiritual death right now in your marriage? Is it floundering? Is it drowning? Need some life? Is there spiritual death right now in your own soul? If you're addicted to certain things, you're caught up in certain realities that are unhelpful and unwise for you. Are there places within faith, church, places of unholiness and love, places of spiritual death that need life? Friends, pour out your heart like Zechariah. Seek the face of the one who puts life in a dead womb. Listen, there are hundreds of stories of men and women, churches, marriages, lying in dust and ashes, dead and gone, dead and gone, but rising forth in new life because God works miraculously. This is what God does. So pray for more of this. This is what salvation is. It begins with faith and repentance. It's the thing that unlocks the spiritual life in you and me, you experience forgiveness. You experience justification. The gavel drops. You are not guilty, but there's more. He's got more for you. And as you continue to exemplify faith and repentance in your life, guess what? New life, more of Christ's new life gets opened up to you. That's what we need. That's what we need. So brothers and sisters, God puts life in this barren womb to remind us that he puts life in our barren souls. Through Jesus, amen. Let's take a moment to ponder the passage.